But tonight we're going to be in John chapter 2. If you've got a Bible, you can open there. It'll come up on the screen behind me. We're not in a series right now, so this is just going to be a standalone sermon, something just as I was praying I thought would be good for us and would be encouraging for us tonight. And what I'm going to do this evening is we're going to look at the bookends of John's gospel. So John was one of Jesus' followers or disciples or apostles, and in his gospel, he's telling the story of Jesus. It's a biography of Jesus' life and ministry. And we're going to look at an event right at the beginning, Jesus' first sign or miracle, and then we're going to look at a conversation that he has right at the end of the Gospel of John, because I think it shows us a lot about what God is like and about what the Gospel, the good news, or the message of Jesus is. So if you've got a Bible, we're going to be reading from verse 1, otherwise Britt will put it up on the screens for us. This is John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. It's coincidental that my wife shared that uh, uh, illustration or encouragement about vows, because that's going to come into our message tonight. Uh, I knew the songs Eugene was singing, but I just thought as we sung the words to that first song, amazing that we're singing about God's love, like a covenant, like a ring, all of those things. We're at a wedding in Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus, Mary, was there. And Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Got someone in the room preparing for a wedding in two weeks' time, so that would be an absolute nightmare. We've run out of wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. That's 75 to 113 liters of liquid. So it's a lot. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Anyone want to take a guess at the cost of the average wedding in America at the moment? Well, this is a 2019 stat, so you're going to have to work that into your calculation. Anyone want to take a guess? Dollars or rands? No one bold enough to shout out an option here. 100,000 rand. It's higher. Anyone else want to have a go? $10,000. 150,000. 200,000, okay, that's a little bit higher. Gareth's really ruined my illustration this evening, but I mean, I appreciate that you actually said something. The answer is more like $28,000. So in today's kind of, uh, whatever, conversion, would be 420,000 rand for an average wedding. We're not talking a fancy wedding, an expensive wedding. I mean, uh, I don't know how much your weddings cost to those who are married in the room, but to me, that would be a lot more than the budget we had for our wedding, 420,000 rand. That sounds really, really extravagant. But in the Jewish culture, in the ancient Middle East, weddings were a huge deal, maybe even bigger than America today or Durban today. They were a huge deal, and they were celebrated as feasts that lasted for days. 
So for example, in Judges chapter 14, Samson, you know, Samson and Delilah, the, Delilah, the strong man of the Bible, his wedding feast lasted seven days. If you think about that, that's a lot of food. It's a lot of wine. It's, I, I don't know what they did for breakfast. It's a lot of cocoa puffs, whatever they did for lunch. But it's not just a lot of food. It's a lot of outfit changes for you and your guests. It's a lot of suits and fancy dresses. And probably the, the most expensive part of a wedding is going to be your venue hire. So you're hiring a venue for seven days to go and have this feast. So it would have been a really, really expensive event. And I just want to highlight that because weddings were very, very significant in Jewish culture even more significant than they are today. So Jesus performs this first miracle, or actually they call it a sign, and there is a bit of a difference. You know, a miracle is a supernatural act of God. A sign points to something. A sign points to what God is like, and in this example, this is a sign pointing to Jesus and his ministry. This whole story is something of a summary or an example to us of what Jesus is all about And he decides to do this first sign to launch his ministry at this wedding here at Cana in Galilee, which clearly must have some significance. So why? Why does Jesus decide to launch his ministry with this sign, like this wedding, with this catering disaster that he needs to solve? You know, we, we look at his life and we see a lot of healings, we see a lot of demons cast out, people raised from the dead. Those are probably even more impressive miracles. You know, you, you go, wow, I've never seen someone raised from the dead. But if I did in front of my eyes, that would blow my mind. You know, if there was just a bit of extra wine at a wedding, I don't think that would wow me too much. So it's quite interesting because this is the first sign he does in launching his ministry, but he doesn't even go public with it. You know, if you think this was the thing you were wanting to do to say, I'm here, I'm the Messiah, the kingdom of God has come, you reckon Jesus would kind of pick up a glass and a knife and just ting, 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 sorry everyone, can I just have your attention for a moment, I don't want to take away from the bride and the groom, my name's Jesus, I just wanted to introduce myself, I'm launching my ministry today, so I wanted to let you know all of the wine tonight is courtesy of Jesus Christ Ministries International, so it's our pleasure we wanted to spoil you, but even more than that, I want to let you know that the wine you're drinking, how good is it everyone? We turned that from water into wine just a few hours ago. It's a miracle wine you're drinking. Mic drop, sits down, everyone's in awe. But he doesn't do that. The only people who know what has happened are the bridegroom and the servants who helped Jesus. It's a really interesting launch to Jesus' ministry, which I think tells us something about what Jesus is all about as we read this story. So what is the significance? Well, maybe another question to ask is, what does marriage signify? What does marriage signify? It's interesting the the, uh, illustration Shell used, because I want to talk a little bit about vows now. And yesterday, we were at this wedding celebration, and really what I did is I shared about marriage for a few minutes, and then they said their vows again, three months ago over Zoom, or 92 days ago over Zoom, and then again in front of their smaller kind of wedding celebration. And I spoke about the covenant of marriage yesterday. And that's not a word that we use often because it sounds old-fashioned. It sounds outdated. But it's at the heart of Christian marriage. And what a covenant is, is it's an agreement between two parties about how they're going to faithfully commit to one another and serve one another. You see, a marriage is covenantal. It's not contractual. And some of you here understand contracts way better than I do. 
you know. Maybe you've had to negotiate a contract for work. Maybe you're dealing with contracts all the time. But in a contract, you make out an agreement where you outline like what you're going to do and what the other party is going to do. You know, what is my responsibility? What is your responsibility? If I do this, how much are you going to pay me? Or, or whatever it is. And if the contract is broken, then I guess there's, there's a big problem. Either we're going to court, or you're not going to get services, or whatever is going on. Whereas a covenant is a different thing. A covenant is not this agreement that can be broken. A covenant is a promise from one party to another. I promise this to you. So maybe the best way to illustrate this is these are some of the traditional marriage vows that you've definitely heard on TV if you haven't heard them at a wedding. Do you, the groom, take the bride to be a wedded wife, to live together in marriage? Do you promise to love her, comfort her, honor and keep her for better or for worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, and I love this, and forsaking all others, be faithful only to her for as long as you both shall live. I said this yesterday at the wedding celebration that I think forsaking all others is such a radical commitment. I got married when I was 26. A lot of women in the world I hadn't met, but I made this commitment to Shell. I chose her and I forsook all the other women that I hadn't met that I could marry. And clearly, guys, I could have married a lot. You can see, you can tell, could have had my pick. But when I made those vows to Shell, I didn't know who else was out there. But I committed to her saying, even if I meet someone more attractive, more interesting, more successful, more wealthy, even more compatible, if in the future I come across someone that I find more appealing than Shell, in that moment I can't even consider them as a romantic partner because on that day, at the end of May, next year's our 10 year anniversary, on that day I forsook all others and chose her alone. Isn't that incredible? Yesterday, this couple who said their vows 91 days before said them again. And they reminded themselves of what they've been doing every day since then, living them out. Now, with a contract, you could have conditions, provisos, small print addendums, whatever, but that's not there in a covenant. It just is what it is. I commit to you. You commit to me. And it's interesting that John chooses this wedding celebration as the launch of Jesus's ministry. He chooses this environment which has this covenantal setting right at the heart of it. And I believe part of that is because maybe God wants to get our attention with covenants. Maybe God wants to get our attention with the commitment that he's wanting to make to us in our lives. In John chapter two, Jesus is probably at the wedding of a close friend or relative, at least of his family. And the commentators say that that's so because Mary seems to be running the show. So if you picture Mary, she's got that head mic on, she's got a clipboard, she's got a pen, she's bossing people around, she's barking orders, she's telling people what to do, because she's in charge. You can imagine this would be a big event. I mean, this is a multi-day wedding feast. Lot to do, lot to plan, lot to organize, lot to execute, lot of stress. And Mary's probably this family friend who's been asked to help out at the wedding. I'm sure many of you have been asked in different ways to help at weddings in some way, shape, or form. But she's got the role of making sure everything goes smoothly. And now we've got a problem. We've run out of wine. And that was a huge deal. Because in those days, these people have closed their businesses. They're not earning an income. Those who've come from out of town have shut everything up and come and traveled to be here for this feast and blocked out maybe seven days of time to be here to celebrate. 
So they had expectations. They've made a sacrifice. They're invested in this couple. They're invested into this wedding. They've made sacrifices. They're hoping there's going to be some pretty good food and enough food for them and some pretty good beverages and some really nice wine. And if that didn't happen, that would be a huge social taboo. And this was the groom's responsibility. You know, different weddings, different people carry different chores or tasks, but the groom in that day would take care of all of the food and all of the wine, all of the drinks, make sure there was gonna be enough for that time. Obviously, make sure there's a little bit extra because you don't wanna be embarrassed. And things have gone wrong at this wedding. They've run out of wine already. It's all gone. This is really, really embarrassing. And Mary comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, we've got a problem. We're, we're out of wine and we need your help. Now, this would have brought shame on this groom, on his bride, on their new family, on this wedding day. It would have put this black shadow over everything that was going on because the groom has messed up. He hasn't done what he was supposed to do, and he would be a bit ashamed and embarrassed, which means you can imagine the honeymoon would be a nightmare. Their marriage would be off to a rocky start. His bride would not be very pleased with him. And as we think of this wedding in John 2, I want you to think of any weddings you've been to that were really memorable for something. A friend of mine, named Jody, she told me about a wedding she went to in the rain. The bride just decided she wanted to get married outside, under this tree, by a river, and the weather was not looking good. Everyone warned her, they said, it's gonna be raining. She said, it's fine, I wanna get married outside, under this tree, by the river. The day came, it was raining. Everyone said, what are we gonna do? She said, it's fine. I'm going to get married there. And as the time came to go outside and get married, everyone put on raincoats and jackets, got out umbrellas and gumboots, went in the mud and got married outside in the rain. She said it was the most incredible celebration as this couple said their vows and became husband and wife. I watched a clip when I was younger that I didn't know was from a movie. When I found out it was from a movie, I felt a lot better. But if you've seen it, otherwise you can go find this on YouTube, it's classic. There's a couple getting married on this beautiful deck overlooking this amazing scenery. And the pastor's there in the middle. You've got the bride and the groom. The best man is called up to bring the rings and he trips over a step like this and he knocks the bride and the pastor off of the deck down into the pool below. And for years, I thought that had happened. You see the bride getting out of the pool, sopping wet. You see the pastor with his Bible trying to flick out all of the water because the pages are ruined. I thought that would be the worst thing that could happen at a wedding. You would never forget that. And we were at a wedding recently, one of the COVID weddings we've done. It was probably 10 or 11 people together on the beach. And something went wrong. The groom decided he really wanted to do something special for his bride on the day. But getting it ready took a lot longer than he thought it was going to take, which meant the wedding ended up starting about an hour and a half later, and the bride was really, really not happy. And there was this amazing moment. They, they said their vows, they did everything, and they wanted to take communion together as their first act as husband and wife. And he says to me, Grant, stop, 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 stop. I need to apologize to my wife. And in front of the 10 or 11 of us um, that are there on the beach, he says, I'm so sorry, I messed up. I wanted to do this special thing for you today, but it took longer than I thought. I dropped the ball, I really messed up. I'm so sorry, we can't take communion until we've dealt with this. And she forgave him there and then. And then the first thing they did was took communion as a couple. And I thought, this is the most incredible thing. I've never seen this at a wedding before. 
the first thing a husband is doing as a new husband is apologizing and asking for forgiveness and grace. He's repenting to his bride, and then they're practicing that with communion. The, the cup and the wine, that's exactly what it represents, that Jesus died for our sins and our failures and our mess-ups and all of that. He's practicing it here. This is the foundation for the rest of their lives that we're seeing here on this beach in Amishlanga. It was such a redemptive moment, and I think that's gonna mark their future. I loved it. This wine mistake in John chapter two wouldn't have been a funny thing that this husband and wife talked about in the future. This would always have been a sore point for them. Remember, you messed up. You didn't order enough wine. You didn't care about me. You didn't do the right thing. You can imagine family at every family gathering you have as a couple for the rest of your life. I remember your wedding. There wasn't enough wine. He really doesn't care about you. Every time. Yes, I remember Uncle Barry. Yes, I know what we did. It would have been an absolute nightmare. But without getting into all of the detail, Mary grabs Jesus and the servants and she says, listen to what he says. And they go and they perform Jesus' first public miracle or sign. Let's just look at verses six to eight of what happens in John 2. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And Jesus turned water into wine. I want you to notice just two things about these containers he's using. The first is about quantity. The second is about quality. Like I said already, these are huge. This is somewhere between 73 and 113 liters in each one of these jars. So all together, we've got 450 to 680 liters. Now, as we all know, as wine connoisseurs in this room, a bottle of wine has 750 mils. So this is somewhere between 600 and 900 bottles of wine that Jesus makes there on the spot. Not bad. Let's call it 750 bottles of wine. We'll just pick right down the middle. That's a lot of wine. This is on top of all of the wine that's already been drunk that the groom thought would be enough for the whole wedding. Jesus says, here's another 750 bottles on me, Jesus Christ Ministries International. Now, they've drunk a lot already. In their culture, they're not getting drunk at this wedding. You know, this isn't just debauchery going on. Christians don't get drunk. The Jewish people, they didn't get drunk at these events. So what's going on here isn't just Jesus giving a lot of wine so everyone is gonna get absolutely crazy. Jesus is showing us a picture of abundance and excess. He doesn't just say, okay, mom, I'll go and comes and brings five bottles of wine. 750 bottles, more than they would ever need. It's like when Jesus makes, kind of feeds the 5,000 and the 4,000. You've got 12 baskets of leftovers and then seven baskets of leftovers. This picture of the God that we see in the scriptures is a God of abundance and excess. Doesn't just give a little, gives more than we could ever ask or need. And wine in the scriptures always represents salvation and grace. So we see this picture here where Jesus brings more than enough wine. We're gonna enjoy communion at the end of the service and we're gonna think of this together, the grace of God which is being given to us. And this is a picture of it here in John 2, the lavish grace of God poured out upon this wedding feast. We don't just see God giving a little bit of grace, a little bit of love, a little bit of forgiveness, you know, almost sprinkling it on you and saying, hey, this is valuable, this is expensive, don't use it all in one place. You need to use this for the rest of your life. God, is there gonna be seconds? No, this is all you've got. 
Oh, there's 750 bottles of wine brought to this wedding showing how great the grace and love of God is. God is not stingy. God doesn't just do the bare minimum. He's not rationing his grace. His grace is super abundant. His love and forgiveness is excessive. I think that's good news for people like you and I who need more than just one sprinkle or one dab. So that's quantity. Next, let's talk quality for a second. I think when I read this story, and I've, I've read it a bunch, I've been in church since I was about 12, so I'm sure I've heard this preached a bunch of times. You go, wow, cool, Jesus turned water into wine, great one, turn the page, let's get on to the next thing. But what can happen in the midst of the miracle and the midst of the quantity of wine that is made is we can miss out on the quality and what's going on here. In John 2 verse 6, it said, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification each holding 75 to 113 liters. So what are these stone water jars that are there for the Jewish rites of purification? Well, they were there for ceremonial washing. So the Jewish people, before they went into the temple, they would clean with water. And this was to signify, it was like a metaphor of an image for the fact that we we need our sins washed away to come into the presence of God. So the water didn't do it, but the water on the outside they would clean themselves with and then go into the temple to worship God. Now here outside the wedding, we see these jars again, these big, big water jars. Now this would not have been like the weddings you've gone to. You know, where in the speeches, we saw it yesterday, the groom or whoever it is says, I just want to thank everyone who came from out of town. I want to thank people from Joburg, Cape Town, back in the day when people flew internationally to weddings and things like that. Thank you for flying from Australia, England, Belo Horizonte, whatever it is. Thank you for coming to our wedding. These people were coming on camels and horses and by foot. If they were traveling from another town, they were arriving sweaty. It was hot. We're talking desert here. There's no air-conditioned cars. There's no airplanes. They would have been sweaty and stinky. So as you arrived at this wedding, we're talking B.O. through the roof. This is a dirty, stinky situation. If mom or dad have been carrying babies and kids, there's vomit on their clothes, they've stood in camel pats, it's been a nightmare of a trip. And now you show up at this wedding to take part, and you're dirty, you're smelly, you're sweaty, you feel gross. So they had these ceremonial water jars outside before you came in. So think of these as a ceremonial equivalent of a sink or a bathtub being used by guest after guest after guest after guest before they come in and celebrate your nuptials. We don't know, I don't know, what sweaty body parts went in those jars, but you cleaned yourself so that when you went in you felt fresh and clean and smelled good and could interact and dance without worry that people were going to judge you. So you can see where Jesus is going to with this, right? He takes this opportunity to make a point about himself and his ministry and his message. And he takes the thing at this wedding that is dirtiest, nastiest, grossest, most unattractive, and he uses that thing to be the instrument to show his lavish grace. He converts a pool of dirt and filth, old bathwater, into the most beautiful and incredible wine that these people had ever tasted. Now, Think about drinking bath water for a second. Not your bath water with beautiful oil of olay and ylang-ylang and lovely smells from the body shop and all of those things. Think of a group of travelers who've all shared the same bath 
and now all of that gunk and dirt and liquid and fluids and whatever is in that water. And now you're going to pour this into fancy wine glasses. And your, Gareth is horrified. He's got a wedding in two weeks. He's just going, what? <laughs> I can't imagine that. Imagine pouring that into wine glasses and champagne flutes and serving that to your guests and cheersing and making toast to the new bride and groom. It's a horrifying sight. And that's part of the, the story and the power of it. And it's what makes Jesus' first miracle so significant was the first revelation that Jesus was showing of what he does with sinful people like you and I. You and I are the stinky, dirty water jars, and Jesus is only he can do is taking us, he's taking what's inside of us, and he's making something beautiful that will be enjoyed by others, that will be enjoyed by the world. In John 2, verse 9 and 10, it says, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. Now notice this, doesn't call Mary, who's doing all the work, doesn't call Jesus, who's performed the miracle, he calls the groom. Why? Because this was the groom's responsibility. And he says to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Now remember, we've said already, the groom failed. He had one job, and he didn't do it. He's done a bad job of this. He's feeling ashamed, stressed, worried about what his bride's going to think, worried about what people are going to think. And he has this moment where he's called up, and this guy's just going, this wine is incredible. You saved it for last. And what is happening here is Jesus is actually contrasting this bad groom who's messed up with himself as the perfect groom who never messes up. Now, throughout the Old Testament, God often talks about himself as a husband, and he talks about Israel, his people, as his bride. And then in the New Testament, Jesus is the groom, and the church is the bride. And it's almost like in this moment, there's a pause. And we look ahead to a day in the future that is to come, where we are with Jesus. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's Jesus' wedding feast. The church and Jesus get married and enter into this union and intimacy that God has been looking forward to for all time. This little wedding feast and sign, this miracle in John 2, every wedding that happens is pointing ahead to that wedding that is to come in the future. And it's like Jesus pauses there. And he says, this groom will fail you, I will fail you, but Jesus will never fail us. He's the perfect groom in every way. He's perfect in every way. And it's like Jesus in every way is using this moment to reveal who he is, to uncover himself, to show us his heart and his person. And we're not just seeing here that Jesus is capable. We're not just seeing here that he's powerful, that he could run a good winery, that he can do anything. You know, Jesus could have done more significant miracles. He could have turned invisible, he could have flown through the sky, shot fireballs, whatever your heart's content is. He could have done that. But this miracle isn't about entertainment. Just, wow, guests, check this out. Jesus is showing his nature. He's showing his heart. He's showing his ministry. He's showing who he is and what a broken world most needs. Now, this could just be because I'm a bit um, self-absorbed and arrogant and proud and all of those things, but when I read a book or a good movie, I like to see myself as the hero. And I go, ah, I'd love to score that touchdown or win that victory or do this thing. But in this story, we're not the hero. We're not the person who turns water into wine. That's Jesus. He's the hero of the story. We in the story are the bridegroom who's failed, and we are those jars of filthy water that he uses to make something beautiful. 
And that's significant. What we see here is that Jesus is the miracle worker who redeems a groom who's failed and who transforms some dirty water into something so amazing. And that's what we celebrate, what Jesus can do with our lives, what Jesus wants to do in and through us, what Jesus has done in the past, what Jesus did in this situation, and he can do in ours too. See, each Sunday as we gather and as we sung these songs that Eugene and Owen played for us today, we're celebrating Jesus. We're celebrating that he came from heaven to earth. We're celebrating that he lived this perfect life and died this death that we deserve to die, that he gave himself for us, that he's reconciled us to God. We're celebrating that he rose from the dead and now is at the right hand of God interceding for us, praying for us every single day. That's who he is. And here we see this man, this ministry of his, how he transforms these two broken pictures into something beautiful. At the end of John's gospel, we get all of that. We get the cross, we get the resurrection, but then we get this moment on a beach. We get this fish bride that happens with Jesus and some of his disciples and this incredible conversation that he has with Peter. And if you know Peter's story, you can imagine how awkward that would have been. Peter was one of Jesus's inner circle, one of his best friends, and he was a bit of a hothead. He'd shut off his mouth a little bit. And there's this moment where Jesus and Peter get into it and Peter says to him, you know what, Lord, I would never betray you. I would never deny you. I would rather die. And Jesus says, you know what? Before the crow, the cock crows three times today, you're gonna deny me three times. And he does. He doesn't realize he's doing it. But people say, when Jesus is being crucified, they say, hey, aren't you one of his friends? No, not me. You're one of the Galileans. You're one of Jesus' crew. No, not me. A little girl points at him and says, I saw you with Jesus later. And he swears, I wasn't with him. And now, Jesus, who died on the cross, is risen from the dead, victoriously conquering Satan, sin, and death. And they're sitting at a table together, eating some cooked fish, beautiful sunrise going on. And it's Peter here with God. And he knows that God knows everything. He knows that Jesus knows what he's done. Must have been super awkward. And just imagine being Peter and just sitting there feeling like, what's he going to say? What's he going to do? When's he going to bring it up? What's going to happen? Because Peter knows he's messed up. Peter, the great, powerful apostle, is the bridegroom who's failed and feels shame over what he's done. And Peter, this strong pastor, this example to the people he's led, is like that jar filled with the dirty water that actually Jesus is about to do something amazing with. So how does Jesus treat Peter after his denials? Does he reject him? I probably would. Seems like quite a big rejection. Three denials when Jesus is most vulnerable, when he's most in need. Three denials again and again and again. Don't cross me, clearly. Like, I'm not like him. But Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't say, I don't do second chances. Jesus does something very different. Instead, Jesus does with Peter what he wants to do with each one of us. He gives a man who's weighed down by shame and guilt his dignity back. He sets him free from this burden that he's carrying of failure and mistakes. And he commissions Peter to be the first leader in the church. It's an incredible thing. You think he's just denied him, and now you call him to care for your sheep. Jesus gives him purpose and meaning and a role to play in his kingdom. And what Jesus does is he says, Peter, you know what? You've got a testimony of my grace. You've got a story of what I do in lives. I, I want you to go and share that 
with others. He takes the filthy water of Peter's life and he makes it into the most beautiful wine. And if Jesus did that with Peter, he can do that with our lives too. Can I ask you guys to stand? Can I ask the band to come forward? We're going to take communion in a second and we're going to worship together in a second, but maybe you can just close your eyes where you are. I think I want to ask you to personalize this message tonight. And I want to ask you, do you believe that Jesus can take the dirty parts of your life and make them into the most beautiful wine? Do you believe Jesus can take the parts of your life that maybe you're ashamed of or embarrassed of, that you don't want anyone to know, that he loves you in those parts and that he wants to transform them, actually that others would drink from them and experience something beautiful, experience God's grace? Do you believe that God can take your shame and your guilt and set you free from it and to use that to bring freedom to others too? If you're feeling weighed down by things now, if you're feeling shame of things from the past or shame from things from now, if you're feeling burdened by them, would you bring them to Him? Lord, where we have failed in the past, would you forgive us and restore us like you did with Peter? Where we are ashamed, would you cover our shame like you covered that bridegroom's shame? where we have got filth in our hearts and our lives. Would you make us into that beautiful wine, Lord? When we take communion, it's, it is a moment to reflect and it's a moment to think what Jesus did on the cross. To think of his life lived for us, his death died in our place. It's a moment to actually bring us in before him, to repent, to ask him to forgive us to live free if you can pick up the little cup on your chair you can start by opening the top and just taking out that little wafer if there's anything you need to bring before God today bring it Jesus body was broken for you he was punished in your place so you don't have to be so if there's anything that you feel you need to be punished for ask God to forgive you and eat this bread knowing that Jesus died for you. Just spilled a bit of this on my top, my white t-shirt. I'm not telling you that because I'm really worried about the shirt, but really the picture is that actually we would be completely covered in the blood of Jesus. Quite an amazing thing. I think some of us maybe do feel dirty. I know um, I was in a meeting once and I remember this woman shared her story and just said, when I met Jesus, I felt clean. I felt washed clean. Jesus washes us clean. He changes us. He makes us like the beautiful wine. So if you have anything you need to be washed clean of, bring it to him now. And let's drink and believe that he does that in us. Jesus, we thank you for your life and your death and your love. Thank you for the story, the story of your ministry launching and what it means for us. 
And I pray that freedom would come right now. Healing would come right now. And that this would go deeper and deeper from our heads to our hearts. Amen.